Do me a favor, open up your Bible to Acts 23. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, here at the chapel, we love God's word, we study God's word, we believe in God's word, and we read God's word. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 23, don't have a Bible, in the pew back Bible in front of you, um, there is a black Bible. You can, up and up, you can open up to page 932. If you don't own a Bible and would like a Bible, you can take that Bible. That is our gift to you. Sorry, I've been coughing. Um, I think I was kind of sick maybe for a while. I don't know. I like to think that I'm not sick. I haven't been to the doctors in decades. But um, um, so I have a little cough that I just started right before the service. So I might be coughing, but it's okay. We're fine. It's going to be okay. Um, so how we get to Acts 23. Um, Dan, a couple of weeks back, uh, was preaching in Acts 20. I think that's right. Right, Dan? Acts 20 or 21. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, we're skipping Acts 22, um, and here's why. Essentially, where we last, last left off, Paul is now in Jerusalem. Remember, he's bringing an offering to the church, and also um, he wants to celebrate the, the Feast of Pentecost. But he gets to the church, and here's what happens. Um, he comes to the church of Jerusalem, and um, people know that he's going to come. And pretty much James, who's the pastor, uh, he's the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and the elders of the church uh, tell Paul, hey, listen, People know you're going to come. Remember, like he was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. Like he worked for the Jewish leaders and persecuted and killed the church. So he kind of turned their back on them. And, and essentially what he's going to be accused of eventually in this chapter is he's being accused of preaching against um, the Jewish tradition and law. And then, he, then he's accused of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts. If you know anything about the temple, right, they had the courts for women. They had the courts for the Gentiles. And then they have the, the courts for just the men. Jewish men who are culturally and ethnically Jewish. So he's being accused of bringing men in there. But anyway, James says, hey, listen, this is what I need you to do. Um, here's what's going to help. Um, here's gonna, what's going to help you and your reputation in our community. What's going to help is if you go to the temple and if you purif purify yourself under the Jewish law and also pay for the purification of these two men who are under a vow before God. So go do that. So he ends up going doing that. They see him in the temple and they're like, oh, Luke, who's back? And then he said, they accused him of preaching against the law, um, preaching against Moses, and preaching against the Jewish tradition, and then um, essentially bringing a Gentile into the court. So what do they do? So they arrest them, the Jewish leaders. This is the Sanhedrin. Um, Sanhedrin, if you know anything about Sanhedrin, they're 70 men. This is the second highest ruling authority in Jerusalem. The highest authority is the Roman Empire and the governors and the proxies, but the second highest is the Sanhedrin. That's how the Roman Empire executed judgment over the Jewish people, right? So there were 70 men, Sadducees and Pharisees, we'll talk about them a little bit later, who decided they see, they see Paul and they want to arrest him. So what do they do? They take him. Um, and um, I just want to point to you an interesting um, verse in the Bible. So they take him. Um, if you look at verse chapter 21, verse 30, we're going to be in 23, but if you look at uh, chapter 21, verse 30, look what Luke says. Luke says in verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. So another riot is about to happen. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. Side note, right? Little rabbit trailer. We're going to chase for about 30 seconds. Interesting that Luke says that the gates of the temple were shut. Why would they shut the temple gates? Well, you might think, oh, it was, you know, 
they wanted to control the riot. But here, here's an illustration, a picture that I want us to see that's going to be helpful for our theme for what we're going to talk about. Um, like, they were going to do something, they were going to do an injustice towards Paul, so they didn't want to do it in the temple, right? So this idea of, like, they're willing to do evil, but just not in the temple, as though they justify it. But, but here's another picture that we see. This is another time in which the gospel is not welcomed among the Jews, right? Like, if you look at the history of Acts, right, much of the advancement of the gospel is among the Gentiles, but Paul and the leaders, like, often brought the gospel to the Jews, right? They went to the synagogues, preached the gospel, and then some received it, but most didn't, and then they raised up some problems for Paul, and then Paul would have to leave, right? Like, this is another picture, this idea, right, that the gates were closed to the temple, this idea that the gospel has no place among the Jews, why? Well, simple. Because in Judaism, the belief is, right, that you are saved, you are justified by what? Your good works, right? That, that if, if, you, if you are a good person, if you do good things and you make sacrifices and atone for your sin, then you have a good standing, a right standing before God. That's what Judaism is, right? Follow all the laws. Don't break any of them. And then God will, will see you just. He will see you righteous. But it's based on what you can do. It's based on your good works. That's why the gospel has no place in Judaism. Why? Because the gospel says that your good works don't save you. It's a gift from God that is given to you that you did not earn, that you cannot earn. It's a free gift. And all you have to do is believe. And that the working of the gospel in your life is not contingent on you, but it's, it's contingent on what? God's faithfulness in you by his spirit, right? That's, that's the idea. And the, this picture is that the gospel is close to the, to the Jews. So they drag him out. Now he stands before the Sanhedrin. They beat him up. One of the commanders see that they beat him up. And Paul, being smart, is like, oh. You see, remember I told you before, I think Paul's from the Bronx, New York. So this is what Paul says. He says, oh, you think you're cute, huh? You want to beat up on me. Do you not know that I'm a Roman citizen? And the commander's afraid because if you were a Roman citizen, you were special. Like, you had special privileges. And the privilege was, like, you were not treated like the common people. You were exempt from, 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 being, from being beaten. You, you, in fact, weren't able to be touched. Only the Roman government was able to execute judgment on you because you earned your citizenship. So he stands before this council. And now the difference that we see in this part is like in chapters 1 to 20 of Acts, we see the gospel moving forward. And we can get really excited about it and says, wow, the, the church is growing and the gospel is reaching to, to people that have not heard it before. But from chapter 20 and all the way to chapter 28, the last chapter in Acts, we're going to see a different side. We're going to see how the gospel is going to have to defend itself. So when we read Acts 23, what we're going to see is that Paul's going to have to defend the gospel. He's going to have to defend the truth of God's word. And going forward, that is what we're going to see. So there's not a lot of fuzziness, a lot of cutesy things that we're going to see. Um, what we're going to see is how the gospel has to push and push and push through the darkness. Because the darkness is trying to overcome it. So we read Acts 23. Our focus is going to be one verse today. The title of today's sermon is A People of Good Conscience. We'll talk a little bit about what that is. Acts 23, on page 932 in the Pewback Bible, starting at verse 1. 
and looking intently at the council, right, this is the Sanhedrin, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That's gonna be our focus for today. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, this is not Ananias, remember, if you remember Acts chapter 19, this is not the Ananias who's a Christian believer who, who um, went to go pick up Paul when he was blinded. This is a different Ananias. This is um, a totally different person. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. So in other words, um, the high priest said, punch him in the face. And Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet you, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Essentially what he's saying is, you guys know that I'm a Roman citizen. You know Roman citizens are not allowed to be touched. In fact, they're not allowed to be beaten or flogged under any Jewish law until they're tried by the Roman government. So you're just breaking the law right now and you put your hands on me knowing that you're not supposed to put your hands on me. But you know the interesting idea in that point is that, that like, remember in the Gospels that Jesus says, hey, when everyone strikes you in the cheek, you should turn the other cheek. And in this passage, we're like, Paul's like, I'm just gonna curse you out, right? Like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna call you whitewashed uh, walls, right? Like, this is, this is awesome that, that Paul, like, he gets punched in the face and he's like, oh, try it again. I dare you, you know? Look what else he says. Verse four. Those who stood by, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part of the Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees, this is, um, think about this, that the Sadducees were more the liberal party of the group. They're the ones that what Paul's going to say, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in spirits, they don't believe in the raising of the dead. Um, they're far more politically driven by the Roman government, far more wealthier. The Pharisees, they were more conservative, follow the letter of the law, um, and they, want, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believe in angels and in spirits. And then if you look at what they said, verse 8, for the Sadducees say there are no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man, for if a spirit or an angel spoke to him, and, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, this is another word for commander, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by forcing and bringing him into the barracks. Like if you'd like to highlight in your Bible, I would highlight verse 11. It's a beautiful um, verse. It's, it's, I think it's, it's powerful. Um, the Lord appears to Paul in a sweet way and he says, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. So, so must you testify also in Rome. Focus of our time this morning is chapter 23, verse one. And the question we're gonna ask, two questions and we're gonna answer those two questions. First question is, what does it mean to live a life before God in good conscience? What does it mean to live a life before God in good conscience? And, and we know that our conscience tells us what is right from wrong, right? Our, our conscience, right, tells us what's the right thing to do, what's the right um, idea to have, what's the right feeling to feel, what's the right decision to make among the wrong feelings and thoughts and actions, right? That's what our conscience does. And, and, and having a good conscience is picking what is good and right. 
despite what we might be feeling or thinking. And I imagine in this room, right, so we're asking this question, um, what does it mean to live a life before God in good conscience? And, and here, here's what we, we are tempted to think. And I actually thought this because when I, when I read this verse, it like stirred in me like even my own past, right? Like we tend to think that when, when Paul says that we live a life before God in good conscience is that we live a life in which every decision we've ever made, every action we've committed, every thought that we've had, everything that we do in our life is done in perfection, right? We place, especially Christians, we do this all the time. We place a heavy burden on ourselves to think that we have to live a perfect life. We place the burden on ourselves to believe and think that our life needs to be marked by perfection, right? This is why fear and anxiety lives so much in our culture today, right? Because we don't want to pick the wrong thing and we don't want to do the wrong thing because we're afraid of the future consequences. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but what I'm saying is that we're looking for perfection. We're looking for the ultimate and good thing to do, but we need to remember, right, that God has not called us to perfection. So, so this verse is like when, when Paul's saying, and he's standing in front of this council, and he says, I have lived a life before God in good conscience. What he's not saying is, I've lived a life of perfection. What he's not saying is that I lived a life void of sin. He's not saying that every decision he's made since the time he became a Christian to that moment on that he's made every right decision or that he's done it perfectly. That's not what he's saying here. And that's, that's my hope that we would understand this morning. So many of us are tempted, especially me, to think that our life, our life needs to be marked by perfection. Right? We set this high expectation in ourselves. Right? Like, like we paralyze ourselves in decision making because like we're looking for the perfect decision. I was talking um, to a pastor recently because in a moment of weakness, I told, um, I told him, I said, listen, I'm, I'm kind of stressed out and I've always struggled in my life because of the church I grew up in to be in God's perfect will. And I'm afraid to make the wrong decision because the wrong decision might negatively affect me and it might negatively affect other people, and this pastor says, you know, I struggle with the same thing. And he said, but, but here, here's the whole point. The whole point is this. You, you do what God's called you to do, and you do it to the glory of God, and, and you leave the results to him, right? Like, God is not looking for you to make a perfect decision. He wants you to make the right decision. But even when you make the wrong decision, he knows that you're going to make that wrong decision. And what is he going to do? He's going to redeem that very decision. Why? Because God is gracious and loving and kind. So, so what he's not looking for from us is perfection. Reminds me of a story of a guy that I recently talked to a couple of months ago. I have a friend. He comes to the church. Um, he's in the process of um, interviewing to join a, the police force in one of our local communities. And I've, he's been doing it for a couple of months now. And I've told him at the beginning, um, dude, like, I'm worried about you. Like, you sure you want to do this? You sure you want to join the police force? Like, dude, if you mess up one time, if you make one mistake, man, that can cost you your entire life. 
Like, you sure you want to do it? Like, you sure you want to do it in that area? Like, why don't you go to, like, this area where you can just, like, you know, do something, like, be the, be the cop on the corner who's helping the traffic, you know what I mean? Like, no, and, and his desire is, is to serve in the community that he wants to be in. So in that interview process, this is what he tells me. It's a long process. He has to do many interviews. And one of the interview, one part of the interview process, he has to take a polygraph exam. And in the polygraph exam, they asked him a bunch of questions. And this is what he told me. He told me, he said, he said that they asked me most, some of the most disgusting questions you could ever imagine. He said, everything that I've ever thought of, everything that I ever did came up. So they ask him these questions, he has to answer them, and everything's coming back to mind, right? Then he has to take the, I think he has to take the polygraph exam afterwards. So they, they're trying to see the compatibility of his answers. So he's having to relive this for like a couple of hours. I think it was a couple of hours he had to do this. And he's having to relive his entire life, every single mistake he's ever made, every good decision, every bad decision, every ordinary decision, he has to live it out because they're asking him all that. And this is what he told me that like stuck, stuck with me to this very day. This is what he said. He said, when I left that exam, he said, I felt awful and disgusted. Why? Because he was reminded of every bad decision he's ever made in his life. That's what sin does. That's what the flesh does. That's what the world does. The world will remind us of our lack of faith. The world will remind us of our infidelity. The world will remind us of every sin that we've ever committed. But the beauty of the gospel, right, the beauty of the gospel that we see, especially in the book of Acts, is that God does not remember our past sins. God does not hold our past against us, right? Like God doesn't say, listen, right, everything that you are right now and everything that you will be is contingent on every good decision you've made in the past. No, what God says and what God looks at us, he says that everything that you have done, I am going to redeem because that is the power of my faithfulness. So when Paul is standing before the, the, the council and he's saying, up until this point, I have been faithful. And then you think of Paul's past and you think of everything that he's done. Think about it. He's persecuted the church. He's killed people, right, on behalf of Judaism. So when he stands before this tribunal and says, I stand before God in good conscience, knowing what? Knowing that not that he lived a life of perfection. That's not what Paul's saying here. So, so what is Paul saying? Not being reminded of the past. What is, what is Paul saying? What does he mean when he says, I have lived a life before God in good conscience? What does it mean for us to be a people of good conscience? Here's what it means. It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean a life absent of sin, right? Nod your head with me if you agree. It's not a life absent of sin. It's not a, a perfect life. You know what it means? Here's what Paul means. It means a life that's faithfully obedient to God. See, what, what Paul is saying, what Paul is saying here in that one verse is that he's lived a faithful life. That is what God, that is what God, excuse me, sorry. That is what God is calling us to. He's calling us to faithfulness. To him. Faithfulness to do what God has called us to do. When? What we see in this passage during adverse situations. It's easy to say that we can be people of good conscience. It's easy to say that we can be people who have been faithful to God when the marriage is good, the kids are okay, there's no drama, the in-laws are behaving, right? Like, we're not gonna fight, 
on where we're going to have Thanksgiving this year because everyone's on board, right? Like it's easy to say that we have been faithful because life is okay and we're living on the mountaintop. No. When does God want us to be faithful? When does God want us to faithfully obey what he's called us to do? When is inconvenient for us to be faithful? Right, so when Paul's saying, I lived a good conscience up until now, what he's saying, in the face of death, knowing that these men, knowing these people want to kill me for what I believe in, Paul's saying that I'm going to remain faithful to God despite what he will allow them to do. That is what life looks like living in faithful obedience to him. It's when it's inconvenient for you and for young people. Let me tell you this. We are heading in a direction in our culture where the world is going to try to bring you to your knees and make you submit to them and their agenda, make you submit to their ideology, and you're going to have to stand and say, no, I'm going to be faithful to God despite what is going to cost me, despite my reputation. So much of us struggle with wanting to live a perfect life and living a life of good reputation among our friends and our family and our coworkers. But we ought to be doing that for the glory of God, not for what people think of us. So when Paul's standing in front of them, he's not saying I lived a perfect life. He's not saying I lived a life absent of sin. What is he saying? I have lived a faithful life. That's what we want our lives to reflect. Faithfulness, not perfection. Knowing that God knows that you are going to sin, knowing God knows that you're going to make mistakes. What he's looking for is faithfulness, meaning he's looking for an everyday commitment to his word, to his promises, and to his person, Jesus. That's what he's looking for, that every day you are going to choose him over the rest of the world. That's faithfulness. Because so much of our world desires for us to be faithful to them, to their ideology. Paul's looking for faithfulness. The question this morning is, are you faithful? Can, can you say that your life is categorized by faithfulness? Not perfection. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm going to keep going back to that because in our minds, we're going to start thinking, no, well, I haven't been faithful because I didn't do this. I didn't do that. No, no, no. I'm talking about a daily commitment to pursue Jesus, his word, and his promises every day, despite the mistake you made despite the sin that's committed to you, despite the sin that you committed to others, right? Like that is what God is looking for, faithfulness. So when he says, my brothers, I have fully fulfilled my duty before God in good conscience, he's talking about faithfulness. So, so how are we going? How are we going to live a life of faithfulness, right? How are we going to be a people who live a life in good conscience. Here's a couple of things that we see, not necessarily explicit in this passage, but in, uh, implicitly in the life of Paul and implicitly in this, in this verse. Here's the first thing that I thought about. When we find ourselves in adverse circumstances, meaning when we find ourselves in difficult seasons, trying times where our faith is being tested, right? Like we think of the persecuted church in the world, right? People dying for the faith, but, but even in our life, right? When, when we're having to live it out in ways that, that are not necessarily the way we want to live it out, but, but we have to live it out. Like, like how do we live this life of faithfulness? How do we be a people of good conscience? Here's, here's the first one, and, and this is what we see. First thing to do is we trust, right? We we trust. What does that mean? Is to, to have an assured and confident disposition and attitude, right? A confident disposition and attitude towards God's plan. 
We trust in God's plan. We trust that God's plan is unfolding in our lives and the lives of the people around us. Right? Think about this, right? Paul's desire in the book of Acts is to go to Rome to preach the gospel. I highly doubt he thought he was going to go in handcuffs. But that's how it's going to happen. He's going to go to Rome to proclaim the gospel, and he's going to have to go in handcuffs. That's not how he wanted to go. Right? If you remember Acts chapter 9, what does the Lord say to Paul? He says, listen, I'm going to save you, and you're going to be an instrument of mine. But guess what? I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer for me. I'm sure that's not what Paul planned for his life. I'm sure many of us in our, in, in our lives right now in this room can point to times that that's, that's, we, didn't, we didn't choose the thing that happened to us, but, we, but it happened. So, so what do we do? We have to trust. We have to have a confidence in knowing that God's plan is unfolding for us. Even when it's hurtful, even when it feels painful, even when it's hard. That God is aware of where you're at. He's aware of the problems. He's aware of the frustrations. He's aware of the pain. And he has you right there. Because he's allowed it to happen. So what do you do? You put your trust in his plan and say, listen, I wouldn't have chosen it for myself, but you chose it for me. So I'm going to walk through it. I'm going to trust in your plan that your plan is what? Good and right for me. Here's the second thing. And that's what we see here, right? Here's the second thing that we can, second way we can be a people of good conscience, and I think this is true of Paul, and we see this actually, he'll mention in a couple of chapters, he says, um, the, the way we can be people of good conscience, standing before God and saying, I've been living a faithful life is this, is remembering the end in mind. So much of our lives, so much of what we do is focused on the here and now, and, and I'm, I'm for that, but also we need to remember that there's an end coming. Right, that, that the point of our life is not the short temporary life that we live. Right? There are many people right, who, who are living for today. They, they can only live for today because they don't know Jesus. They, they don't believe in Jesus. They don't follow Jesus. So what happens? They, they live this temporary life, however many years God will allow them, and they live it for now, and they find their joy and their peace in materialism, in themselves, in relationships, in power and influence. Right? But for the believer who believes in Jesus Christ, we know that this life is so temporary right, that we don't live our life here for the now, we live it for the glory of God for the life to come, right? So, so they live for this, we live for this. What's gonna happen at the end? They live right here, we live knowing that this is coming. This is coming. So when Paul's standing before them and he's saying, I have lived a life in good conscience up until now, what is he thinking about? He's thinking that you may take my life, but my life was given and it will be given back to me at the end. So much of our people and our young people think of the now. Um, I had a conversation with someone recently that was struggling internally about life's problems and some of the things that they're dealing with. And, and one of the things that they said was like, I desire to do this. I desire to experience this. And I don't want to die yet because I want to do this, 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 and this. And all those things are good. But are you thinking about the end in mind? Are you thinking and focusing on your time here on earth, knowing that this is short? Or are you focused on what's to come, right? That the problems and issues that we face today will one day not, not happen. That's what Paul did, right? Remember the end in mind. I think of the Beatitudes, right? Matthew chapter five, it said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is what Jesus says. Think about this. Jesus is what Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's interesting that, that um, Stephen was talking about earlier. I don't know if he did in second service, but in his first service, he mentioned a passage, all right? Like he said, you're, you're going to be persecuted. If they're persecuting the master, what makes you think they're not going to persecute the servant, Right? That's this idea, right, that, that the world is not supposed to be our friends. The world doesn't really like us. And it's okay that we go through problems and suffering because Jesus went through it, right? Like if Jesus went through problems, he went through suffering, he went through pain, then we should expect the same thing. Knowing what? The end in mind. Here's the last thing. Look at verse 11. I'll encourage you really quickly. Sorry, I went a little hard. Look at verse 11. There's no more divine intervention. If you remember before, Paul's arrested and somehow miraculously an angel shows up in the prison and frees him and he's out. Not this time. Paul doesn't get exempt from this now. But here, here's a sweet moment. And this is a moment that we often have by the Lord, um, not necessarily in a physical vision, but oftentimes an impression in the spirit. He says, take courage. For you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify in Rome. Here, here's the third way in which you and I can be a people of, of good conscience, living a faithful and obedient life. That's trusting in God's plan, remembering the end of mind, and here, the third one, have courage. It's to have courage. I love um, the actual language, the Greek language in this. When I was doing my study, here's, here's the idea. It doesn't really take form in the version that we're reading, but the, the idea of take courage, what it actually is meant is, is keep your courage. Right? So in that moment, when Paul is facing, right, uh, a threatening moment where his life is in the hands of other people, that he might die, right? God gives them a promise. Hey, they won't touch you, but here's what I want you to have. I want you to have courage. The courage that you have in yourself, I want you to keep having it. Why? Why does God encourage him? Because God has a plan that is unfolding for him. The same is true for us. We ought to have courage in the face of adversity, in adverse circumstances. Take courage. Do not be afraid, right? Like, this is why Philippians says, do not be anxious about everything. Why? Because God is in control. God is working it out. The results are up to him, not yours. So when you're feeling distressed, when you're feeling overwhelmed by life's problems, when you're feeling overwhelmed by your past, when you're, when you're feeling the weight and burden to live a life that you want to live, just remember, have courage that God is faithful. You can trust him. He is trustworthy with everything. Like, if Paul can trust him, knowing that the beauty about Paul is Paul knew where he was going and he knew he was going to suffer, right? Like, imagine someone telling you, hey, listen, for the rest of your life, from this point on, you are going to suffer. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be abused. You're going to be weak. You're going to suffer. Your life is going to be a torment day in and day out. And I still want you to live that life out. Like, I, I mean, that's what he did. That's what the Lord told him. And yet he remained faithful. He remained courageous. And he remained trustworthy, right? So the question this morning to you is, can you call yourself someone who's lived a life of faithfulness? 
Like, can you say, I, like Paul, am, I am like Paul. I, I have lived a life in good conscience. Here's the beauty. I bet you many of you in the room said no. Here's the beauty. That God is gracious, gracious to us. And that you can live a faithful life now. Regardless of what happened in the past. Regardless of what happened before you became a Christian. You can live this life. And you can say, I in good conscience stand before God who's lived a life faithfully, not perfectly, look at me, not perfectly, faithfully. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, you are good, you are great, you are awesome. And we see your greatness and power in your word. God, we, we want to be like Paul. We want to be able to say we lived a faithful and obedient life unto you, for your glory and for your honor. Despite what the world is going through, despite the problems of this world, we want to be those people. God, would you help us? Show us the way as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name. And the people of God say. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.